0: It's critical that you engage with your users before designing the interventions. It's often said that you you should walk a mile in their shoes.
1: Hello and welcome to Frontier Tech Talks. My name is Asad Rahman. This show gives short, sharp, practical tips on how to go about using new technologies to solve big international development problems. Straight from those who've been there and done it, We're part of the Frontier Technologies Hub, piloting cutting-edge tech all over the world for social good. Have you ever used a piece of tech and wondered why it was designed that way? Or built something and wondered why nobody's using it? The truth is, it can be hard to understand what people really want. Today, we're focusing on getting honest, usable user insights in technology with Wecliff Wawiru and Christine O'Dor from Population Services International. Before we begin, I just want to say a little about what we do. Funded by the UK Department for International Development, we support teams with ideas for how technology might solve entrenched global challenges. We take an idea and provide some funding and support to try it out in the real world, learning about whether or not it works. Weecliffe and Christine have been involved in trying out two of our ideas, both relating to sexual health and well-being. One is testing whether a smart, internet-connected vending machine can provide discreet, reliable access to contraception in rural and peri-urban settings. And another is exploring whether chatbots might provide confidential access to valuable, sex-positive information on sexual health. This work is all taking place in the Greater Nairobi area in Kenya, Wycliffe and Christine are going to talk about the user research process, how they talk to the young people about whether these ideas would actually help them.
0: The way that we implement our uh, programs within PSI is that we use a design framework uh, called Keystone, which builds and borrows significantly from user-centered design approaches that have been implemented around the world. And the framework, as you can see, has four main components. Uh, The first is the diagnose phase, which typically aims to answer the question, who is the market failing and how is it failing them? So in this particular context, we're looking at sexual and reproductive health among young adults, and we understand that their needs are for information, uh, and access to products and services. And so we ask, seek to ask ourselves, how is the market failing them in this regard? The second bit uh, is the decide phase, where based on the insights we have identified uh, in the diagnose phase, we decide on the particular components of the intervention we will apply. And so for both of the pilots, um, sprint one focused on the diagnose and decide phases of our framework or our process. Uh, the next two stages are really around design and the design process, and it goes through a round of prototyping with users. And the final phase is around the deliver, where we implement the activities that we have designed.
1: Christine, can you dive into some of the specifics for us?
0: As Wycliffe mentioned,
2: we began our process with diagnosing how the market is failing young people. Even though we had reviewed existing data and had experience in designing sexual reproductive health interventions for youth, uh, we still needed to test our assumptions. So we set out to understand uh, young people's sexual behavior, their fears and motivations, how and from where they access information on sex and pleasure, and their experience as they purchase sexual reproductive health services and products including contraception. So this enabled us to gain empathy for our target audience, which ensures that we keep them at the center of our decision-making process. So how did we engage respondents to ensure that we elicit the information that they required? So we conducted qualitative research through focus group discussions and in-depth interviews. The focus group discussions uh, were for testing concepts for example user experience with chatbots or vending machines while the in-depth interviews used were used to uh, get a deep deeper insights into behaviors that participants may not have felt comfortable to divulge in a group setting uh, such as how often they were having sex where they were getting information on sex and pleasure how many sexual partners they had, or uh, whether they were practicing safe sex or not. So we started by recruiting young qualitative data collectors with experience in sexual reproductive uh, health research with young people to facilitate a more peer-driven approach and provide a safe space uh, for open discussion with our participants. Uh, We went further uh, to have or to build in adaptability into the research process so that we could change our strategy when we were not getting the responses uh, we required. So, for example, at the beginning of our interviews, we realized that uh, our gender matching approach, where we'd have a male uh, data collector interviewing a male respondent and a female interviewing a female respondent, uh, was not providing us ample uh, information. The participants were still feeling judged at a certain level and are not comfortable enough to share. So we decided to change uh, tact and uh, try testing the effect of having a male interview a female and vice versa. And from that point on, the participants were more open to discussing personal issues in depth, which was very helpful and very insightful for us. Uh, Up and beyond that, uh, we also used indirect techniques in engaging participants up and beyond one-on-one interviews. So, for instance, during focus group discussions, we realized that there are certain feedback components that the participants were a little reluctant to share. For example, feedback on what they thought about samples Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, sex-positive content that they engaged with. They were not comfortable sharing what content they found of interest within the group setting. So we included use of voting exercises, which was done privately in a booth, even though that was an activity included within a focus group discussion. So what we did is to ensure that our data collectors were equipped with uh, the ability to make informed decisions, timely decisions on when to push further, when to change tack, when to realize that our consumers were not comfortable with engaging further uh, with the discussions that we were having, when to stop, uh, when to change tact uh, to ensure that we were getting as much information as we could. And that was really helpful.
0: Yeah. So as Christine has said, you know, the key things that we want you to take away from this discussion is that first... It's critical that you engage with your users before designing the interventions. It's often said that you know you should walk a mile in their shoes and the whole process of us developing empathy with them is to enable us to understand what challenges they're facing, to enable us to understand what behaviors they have that will either motivate them or hinder them from accessing our interventions. And through that process, we generate the insight that helps us better plan or better design the intervention. And we've seen that being very, really powerful. You know, um, we have as an organization and and as people working in sexual and reproductive health, we have worked in this area for a long time, but we do not work in with the assumptions that we know our consumers, Uh, even though we've done research, we just, we walk in with the assumption that yes, we, we have some assumptions, but we need to test them. We need to engage with our users, and ensure that whatever we think is a problem and how they see the problem uh, is aligned with how we are seeing it. So we need to align ourselves with them. Uh, The second bit is around creating an environment that enables users to open up. And it could be around where you're meeting them, uh, how you're engaging with them, who is engaging them during that process. And I think Christine has given some examples. And one of the things we learned um, through this process, or we've continued to learn actually, is that the language that they speak when they're talking about sex about you know their partners about where they are having sex and who is usually codified right and and our research assistants or data collectors were able to understand the coding and decoding because they're speaking a form of slang that is very age specific and so creating an environment that can enable them to open up really helps you understand what's going on in their world. How did you recruit participants
1: for the research?
0: Initially, when we tested the process, uh,
2: before implementing it, uh, our recruitment, we had challenges in our recruitment process because we ended up with students, one faculty from the universities. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we had to now include other levels of recruitment so that there was you know, inclus- inclusivity and also so that we could mix the different participants. So what happened the first time was we ended up with public health students because they found it interesting, I guess. And they were all talking about mental health and they were you know, stuck on one area of conversation. So we had to dig deeper to find out what they're currently doing in the university, how they got to know about the ad and stuff. And then we realized we needed to go bigger than just placing our recruitment ad on the bulletin boards. So that's where the flexibility came in. Uh, we had random recruitment in the central business district, you know, so that we'd have students from different universities or institutions within the city, and then also move to the community level. So it's good that we had a testing process first before implementation.
1: Could you speak a little bit about gender matching and why people opened up more to the opposite sex, as you touched on earlier?
2: So initially we thought that uh, participants would be more comfortable speaking to their own gender, Um, like, you know, a sister to sister, brother to brother kind of effect. Uh, But when it reached to the point of opening up to their sexuality, they want to speak to someone like them. So for example, if I my sexual orientation is uh, more inclined to females and I'm not too sure if the female interviewing me is like me, then I tend to hold back information. Uh, the males were very uncomfortable discussing issues around the sexual orientation, for instance, and especially more with the males. So, when we realized after a couple of interviews that most questions around sexual partners, sexual activities, um, access to sexual information, information about sex and stuff like that, we thought to just try and change and shift and see if there's going to be any difference. And initially when we were testing this process, we had mixed groups. So we did this even for our focus group discussions. We mixed the males and females. Then we realized the females were not talking at all, and the males were being careful on what they talked about. So we split the groups and made sure we had homogeneous groups in the settings. However, at the point of data collection or interviewing, we, made, we also switched our interviewers to then have a male interviewing a group of females, though having a female note taker with him in the event that a female needed to take over with the process. So we made sure we also paired our data collectors so that there was a male and female at every given point and when there was an opportunity for the female to explore a question further, that female would drop in and pick up the conversation and the same when the male was needed. To summarize, you
0: know, do we know exactly why it worked that way, why we the female respondents opened up to males? We don't know. We just know that it worked. Uh, we can hypothesize, but we actually don't know what. Yeah, but, but
1: that's what worked. I know you did interviews and focus groups as part of your user research. How did you treat them differently?
2: Um, okay, thanks, Asad. What we have done is for the in-depth interviews, we focus more on personal experiences. So it, it's a one-on-one interview. Uh, it gives an opportunity avenue for an open discussion. So they, we start with warm-up questions, you know, just to break the ice, and then build uh, to more personal questions around their sexual behavior. However, when it comes to focus group discussions, the guides are more structured around general observations or feedback of peers, of people like them so that they are more comfortable talking about a third party than themselves. However, that does not limit them from sometimes, you know, starting to talk about their experiences. But when they do that, they are comfortable talking about it and we build on it. Did you
1: find that the conversation was different if the group knows each other?
2: Yeah, so uh, one one of the things we do is uh, have a biodata. So we have a a spreadsheet that has a collection of all participants who have been recruited. So we have the recruitment process as the first step. Then we put all that information in a database and check the similarities across the people who have signed up. One of the things we look for is information around how they got to know the information, what university they currently are in, what faculty, what unit they're studying um, and things like that. So if we realize we have people who are most likely to know each other, including areas of residence, we mix them up and create the specific focus group discussions and then now make an invitation to a session where we know we have limited opportunities of people who know each other within the same session.
0: And the it is, the two reasons, one is that people are less likely to speak about sensitive things in the presence of people who know them because they fear judgment. So that's, you know, it affects the dynamics of the group. Uh, But secondly, from a confidentiality perspective, we do not, even during the sessions, we don't refer to people by name, right? Because we want to ensure that they feel comfortable, that nobody, nothing that they say within the session will be leaked out. right? And, And so that's why we wouldn't want two people who know each other in the session, because then
1: it's, Opens up that risk of a breach of their confidentiality. Do you think there's a magic number of users before something counts as an insight?
0: Um, so, is there specific guidance? I'd say no. I can talk about our experience. Um, for each of the sprints we spoke to during the focus group, about um, 72 people um, for part of them in focus group discussions, but in in-depth interviews. What we try and do, uh, especially for the in-depth interviews, is go is, is speak to fewer people, but go in-depth, right? So we spend more time understanding specific things about them. Um, I'd say there are no r- specific rules I'd give, uh, but the sample should not be one or two, but should be large enough that it enables you Understand the profile of your client, understand their journey um, either towards purchase of, a, of of a product or a service or seeking information yeah because it reaches a point where you could get to saturation and you 're just getting the same information over and over again and and that's what i'd say is a, a, a marker for you you know you can start with a smaller sample with the aim to increase and then you figure out you reach a place where i 'm hearing nothing new then I can stop so keep it. Uh, to a sh- small group uh, a short duration of time but watching out for when you think you're stopping to learn something new
1: That was me speaking with Wycliffe Wawiru and Christina Doe from Population Services International discussing the importance of generating accurate user insight particularly on sensitive topics such as sexual health we hope anyone building a piece of technology whether it's for young men and women in kenya humanitarian workers in syria or government in mozambique can learn from what they've heard a rigorous approach to growing user empathy with your end users will go a long way to ensuring people actually end up using what you build thanks for listening to this episode of frontier tech talks to find out more about this work and the wider program please find our medium publication by googling Frontier Technologies Hub or reading the show notes. Funded by the UK Department for International Development, we pilot cutting-edge tech all over the world for social good. This episode is part of a six-part series that gives short, sharp, practical tips on how to go about using new technologies to solve big international development problems, straight from those who've been there and done it.